Welcome to a very special episode of Scream Scene. The horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. Except for this episode. This is our very first bonus episode on a horror adjacent movie. And this episode is the pilot for this new continuing side series of horror adjacent films. So normally we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order. But for this horror-adjacent series, I imagine we'll be bouncing around here and there with whatever seems to pop up as, like, the next one to watch. For this first entry, it felt like the natural starting point should be with one of sort of the most... um, Iconic? Iconic and, like, frequently mentioned horror-adjacent kind of movies... A movie that is definitely not horror, uh, because it is definitely a comedy, yet is definitely still part of various movie series that we have covered on the show and sort of forms like a key part of the story of those franchises. Yeah, I've heard it described as like the swan song of classic Universal. That's right, because today we are watching... Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein from 1948. There's other Abbott and Costello Meet monster movies. Movies, yes. Yeah, but this is like the very first one. That's right. And it does include some of the more, I'll say, super classic universal yeah. monsters. Like, there's no mummy in this one, but there is Dracula, Frankenstein monster. And the Wolfman. Yeah, the big three. The ones who had been a part of the Monster Rally crossover movies before this. Yeah. And this is really like the final Monster Rally movie, in addition to being an Abbott and Costello movie. We've covered all of the other, you know, Universal Monster movies from these characters uh, in the past. So I know that there's like a long list of episodes that people can go back to. Do you want to like briefly walk us through the long story and tangling histories of these characters, Sarah? (laughs) I shall endeavor to do so. It all begins in 1931 with Dracula, episode 24, starring Bela Lugosi. And that is a huge hit. Now, Dracula gets got at the end, uh, so keep that in mind. Hmm? Uh, Put a stake in it. Right. Instead of pin. Yeah. Um, later that same year came Frankenstein, episode 26. Another huge hit and skyrocketing Boris Karloff into stardom. Four years later comes Bride of Frankenstein. We covered that in episode 48. In those four years, Universal did other movies, so it's not like horror was taking a break. And then Bride of Frankenstein comes in and really rejuvenates, oh, I was going to make a Frankenstein joke, brings to life a whole new campy version of of horror. Um, so again, Karloff returns as the creature. This time he can talk. And we still have Colin Clive as uh, the titular Henry Frankenstein. Now the climax of Bride sees the creature like blowing up the castle with him 
uh, Henry Frankenstein and then Dr. Pretorius all in there. Yeah. No, Henry escapes. Henry escapes with Elizabeth, but the creature... they have to go have kids, right? Yeah, the creature, the bride, and the um, gay mad scientist are all exploded. So by the late 30s, mid to late 30s, horror was having a hard time because it was still getting used to the code. That was one thing that made Bride so amazing. To try to follow up the success of Bride, Universal produced a sequel to Dracula in 1936, Dracula's Daughter, which we cover in episode 62. This uh, no longer has Lugosi, obviously, because Dracula is dead, if you recall. It stars Dracula's daughter, Gloria Holden. Um, it's a little bit of like a gender swap speedrun of Dracula, so Gloria Holden does die by the end. The other thing that dies is horror right. after Dracula's daughter. Um, we don't get another horror movie for three years until Universal decides, let's try this like sequel thing again, back to Frankenstein. And in 1939, they release Son of Frankenstein, which we cover in episode 66. Now, in Son of Frankenstein, um, Karloff is still playing the monster. Basil Rathbone plays the son of Frankenstein. Lionel Atwell has a part in here as the inspector. And Lugosi plays Igor, a uh, hanged man who has survived and manipulates the creature into murdering people who sentenced Igor to die. In Son of Frankenstein, Karloff wasn't super happy because the monster is basically mindless. He's just a big walking brute. So Karloff doesn't return again for the monster after Son of Frankenstein. Next, we get a little bit of a combo breaker. <laughs> or at the very least, the introduction of the next creature in this big three, the Wolfman from 1941, which we covered in episode 88. Yeah, I think the big impetus there was Karloff, you know, walking off from the Frankenstein franchise, Lugosi's career also making him not someone Universal wanted to hire anymore. So it's like, okay, we need a new monster who's not Frankenstein or Dracula. Lon Chaney enters as Lawrence Talbot, the Wolfman, in 1941. Now, this is the werewolf movie that we get most of, like, the popular culture idea of what a werewolf is from. Um, but the main thing to remember is that poor Larry will only turn on a full autumn moon. Mm -hmm. Larry gets killed <laughs> at the end of Wolfman, as is the universal way. The Wolfman was super successful. But Universal still decided, let's go back to the Frankenstein well with Ghost of Frankenstein from 1942, which we cover in episode 90. This time, again, we have Lugosi as Igor and Chaney as the creature, still mindless. Lionel Atwell comes in again, but this time as the next mad scientist to uh, lead the next son of Frankenstein astray, Cedric Hardwick. This movie ends with, basically, Lugosi's Igor getting his brain transplanted into the creature, but because the blood types don't match, he goes blind. And then, of course, you know, castle, fire, blow up, whatever. Mm -hmm. Typical ending of a Frankenstein movie, the castle blows up. Yeah, the, the blindness is why popular culture Frankenstein monster walks with his arms out in front of him. 
Yeah. Yeah. Ghost of Frankenstein didn't do too well. Mm-hmm. Um, so Universal's like, okay, well, let's shake things up and have one of our most popular monsters, the Wolfman, meet Frankenstein. Uh, and this occurs in the 1943 movie Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which we cover in episode 102. Cheney cannot come back as the creature because he's playing the Wolfman. So they have Lugosi playing the creature because it's Igor's brain in the creature anyways, except they cut out all of his lines, so he's just wandering around mute, basically. Yeah, it's... They decided that Lugosi's voice coming out of the creature was, like, unintentionally hilarious. <laughs> so they, they cut all of his scenes. So if you don't know the continuity of the series, you wouldn't know just from watching Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman that it's Igor's brain in the creature's body. Um, but it's clear if you do know the continuity that that's the intention. Yeah. But who can keep up with this continuity? I can barely keep up. Yeah, and it's our job to keep up. <laughs> um, Larry Talbot comes back to life because he's risen from the dead by a full moon. Yeah. Turns out he can't die. <laughs> Some moonlight hits his dead body in the crypt that had been broken into, and he rises from the grave. Um, as Ben says, he cannot die. So yeah. he goes on the search for Dr. Frankenstein to be like, oh, I've heard of this like really famous guy. Maybe he can help me. Dr. Frankenstein and his two sons <laughs> are dead. Yes. But Larry does find the creature. So the creature is... He, he tries to get the creature to show him where um, the Frankenstein notes are. Um, maybe we can help me through that way. We do meet Baroness Frankenstein, Frankenstein's granddaughter, uh, played by Alona Massey. She brings the notes to uh, her love interest, who is also a doctor, played by Patrick Knowles, who slowly goes mad with the idea of, like, but Frankenstein monster must create better and have him go on rampage. It's just a, it's just a, a compulsion once you start playing around with it. Yeah. Now, the ending of Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, that's important to note here, is by the end, in the last five minutes, of course, the creature gets his full strength back, his eyesight is restored, and Larry is still the Wolfman and has transformed into the Wolfman, and they are fighting in the lab as it's on fire, and townsfolk decide to blow up the nearby dam so that the castle gets flooded and destroyed. Mm-hmm. So that's where we leave that. Never one to put all of their eggs in the same basket. Universal, that same year, 1943, releases Son of Dracula, which we cover in episode 109. Because we did the daughter. So, so here's the son. And the son is played by Lon Chaney. <laughs> Just getting all the jobs. Yeah, only actor to have played Dracula, the Wolfman, the Frankenstein monster, and the mummy. But does he remember playing all of them? <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Uh, Son of Dracula, you know, kind of a unique spin on the Dracula mythos. It's, it's not so much um, like a speed run like Dracula's daughter was. And in an interesting way, it's almost like a uh, mortal woman manipulating Alucard into turning her into a vampire. Mm-hmm. 
Long story short, the son of Dracula dies. <laughs> yes. Gets dusted by the sun. Son of Dracula does all right, but Universal really wants those dollar-dollar bills. So they go, huh, well, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman did fairly well. So what if we just had, like, all of the monsters? Yeah, you know. In the house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Clearly, if we make one movie with three monsters, it'll be the cost of making one movie, but the box office of three, right? That's how math works. I think that's how math works. Yeah. So they release House of Frankenstein in 1944, which we cover in episode 125. And in this film, Karloff returns to Universal, to this horror franchise, but not as the creature. This time he is the mad scientist. This time we have Glenn Strange as the creature. We also have J. Carol Nash as a hunchback assistant and a short cameo from George Zuko, who is also an actor who audiences would recognize from Universal horror movies in this time period. So it's kind of like uh, like a ton of like Easter eggs and cameos all through here. As far as like our big monsters in the house, obviously Frankenstein, the creature, Glenn Strange, Wolfman comes back, Lon Chaney. This time he is hoping to get cured. Um, well, I guess that was last time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's his continuing Continuing sort of mission yeah. to explore strange new worlds. And Dracula comes back. This time it's not his son, it's not his daughter. It's literally still Dracula, but this time played by John Carradine. Yeah. So he has a mustache and is very thin now. Just as charming. Now, this is the very first Monster Rally movie. Universal doesn't really know how to do this. No one really knows how to do this. So, for John Carradine's Dracula, we really just get, like, a short speed run of the standard Dracula tropes. You know, going after the girl, getting got at the end, um... He he gets got by the sun uh, in a very funny manner. Um, so he doesn't really even get to the house. Yeah, it's it's like the film's very um, fragmentary that way. Yeah, episodic. Mm-hmm. In any case, Karloff, Nash characters get to the house. And in the basement, in an underground cavern, they discover the frozen solid bodies of the creature and the wolfman locked in combat. After defrosting, you know, wolfman, cure me, blah, and um, usual mad scientist, oh, the creature, bring him to full power, whatever. By the end of the film, um... He gets shot with a silver bullet and is killed. Oh. The villagers still create the mob and storm the castle and the lab, and the creature escapes... Into quicksand. Mm-hmm. Dragging Karloff's doctor with him. Yeah. And Talbot dies in this one, right? But not for long. Because <laughs> the following year, 1945, we have House of Dracula that we cover in episode 134. Despite seeing, in no uncertain terms, John Carradine's Dracula get demolished to ash... He returns as Dracula to to enter his house. 
<laughs> House of Dracula again brings together our big three. Dracula, Wolfman, and Creature comes back. We are set at the house slash medical treatment center of a not mad scientist played by Onslow Stevens. Lawrence Talbot comes to him looking for a cure. Also coming to the house is Baron Latos, um, aka Dracula, at least a more creative name than Alucard, comes to like go after the girl, and they also discover <laughs> in the nearby swamp Frankenstein's monster. Now, Lawrence is like, man, trust me, don't mess with this creature. But, you know, scientific curiosity uh, kind of sparks in the brain of Onslow Stevens. But, you know, he's good, so he's not going to do anything weird. Except the method of trying to cure Lawrence Talbot is through blood transfusions. And with Dracula skulking around, he, uh, Dracula, that is, transfuses some of his blood into our scientist. Yeah. Um, it's not really clear why. I kind of explain it as, like, he wants to create another vampire, but he can't, like, turn a guy because, like, it's already established that turning someone into a vampire is a sexual thing. That's that's how I explain that. But in any case, uh, our, our scientist goes evil, goes mad because of this Draculan influence. Right. Now, they... <laughs> About halfway through the movie, um, Lawrence, the scientists, everyone kind of goes like, oh shit, this is Dracula. And they stake him, kill him, whatever. So he's done. Yet, the movie's still going. Mm -hmm. Because the evil influence through the blood is affecting the scientist such that he goes mad and decides, no, I'm going to bring this creature back to life. And Lawrence is like, fuck, not this again. He kind of goes along with it for a little bit because the idea for the cure is to basically swap brains. Yeah, it's it's it doesn't a, matter. I it's guess. a little overcomplicated, but yes, there's like a bunch of other people involved in this as well, including an assistant who's a hunchback and wants to be in a normal body, and like all these other kind of things. The basic premise is that they're going to do some brain swapping like, a around, like, a whole circle of people until everyone ends up with, like, the body that they want. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. But Lawrence Talbot does get cured, and at the climax, the creature goes on a bit of a rampage. The way that this film ends is the laboratory is burning down, and Lawrence, as just Lawrence, plain, simple Lawrence, is fighting off the monster. And then the lab kind of crumbles into the fire. So it's almost like he sacrificed himself. Yeah, with being cured, he should be able to die permanently now. Um, because being like a weird revenant was like tied to being a werewolf. Yeah. Supposedly. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're making up rules as we go along, you know? Yeah. So that's the nearly 15 years of these big three. From episode 24 to episode 134. Mm -hmm. Now, folks, if you want to see the most up-to-date version of the rankings, head to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. 
But I will note that Son of Frankenstein is the highest ranked movie of the big three at number 13. Yeah. And the lowest is Ghost of Frankenstein at 93. Yeah, Ghost of Frankenstein's some tired, tired ass shit. Yeah. And these are the rankings as of the end of January 2021. The thing about these, like, later movies in the franchise, starting with, like, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, is there's a very, like, predictable pattern to them. Uh, The creature gets discovered early on, but often is, like, sidelined because he's, like, needs to be rejuvenated by the lightning and stuff uh, until the very end of the movie. Lawrence Talbot shows up. He needs a cure. He needs to either find a way to not be a werewolf again or find a way to die permanently or both. Um, and he usually is wrestling up the support of some sort of mad scientist who gets distracted by Frankenstein's monster and doesn't get around to curing Larry Talbot. And Dracula is there, but usually his plot lines are like just sort of completely separate. And then the Frankenstein monster gets revived in the last like two minutes of the movie to go on a rampage, fight Larry for a little bit, and have the castle blow up around them. And that's basically the same pattern through all of these Monster Rally movies. Which means that even though they have Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman in them, there isn't actually a lot of interaction between the monsters, because Dracula's plotline is usually separate from Larry Talbot's, and the Frankenstein creature only wakes up in the last, like, two minutes of the movie. For the most part, they're almost just like Wolfman movies bookended by Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. The thing that is surprising through the entire, like, meta-franchise is that sometimes the continuity is really good, and there's, like, some things that they really pay attention to, and there's other things that, like, they just do not care about and gets, like, really left by the wayside the status of, like, Frankenstein's castle and the last notes of Dr. Frankenstein, sort of, like, there's always, even if the notes get destroyed, there's always, like, one more cache of, like, hidden notes in, like, one more, like, safe somewhere. Yeah, like, he was, like, a fucking squirrel. Right. And, like, the lab and the castle and all of his like various places get destroyed like multiple times but it's always like oh well this time it's the ruins getting like fully destroyed and then it's like right but these are like you know and so yeah and then of course even if they are being careful about some of the continuity sometimes like you know oh this is the other son of him or whatever um some stuff they just don't care about like oh larry talbot's just back alive in this one and, and stuff like that. You're really at the whims of the writer and director. What they were like, yeah, okay, cool. We'll just make it like that. I feel like most of the continuity for Frankenstein's monster as a character and the Wolfman as a character is fairly consistent with some of the inconsistencies, like, easy to explain away. The character who really suffers is Dracula. Because be- he dies at the end of every movie. Yes, he, he and with no real explanation for how he comes back. Um, in like you can headcanon it that like, oh well, he just propagated a lot of like little vampires here, and the name and title get passed on to whoever's next in line or right. something. Except that like, okay, he gets staked at the end of the first Dracula movie, which is why the second movie is Dracula's daughter, and then the third movie is Son of Dracula. Fine, and like in Son of Dracula, Alucard 
calls himself Count Dracula because, as you just said, like the, the title would pass on, right? The problem comes in House of Frankenstein, where the way he's revived is they've got his skeleton on display in like a traveling circus kind of show, and when the stake gets pulled out, he revivifies, which is not like how that works, but it's fine. They're, it's fine. This is the universal version of vampires. Except that it's not fine because in Dracula's Daughter, the first thing that happens in that movie is that Dracula's Daughter, like, burns his corpse in an attempt to cure her own vampirism. Yeah. Regardless, even if we let that slide, uh, and it's like, okay, you take the stake out, he comes back to life, we definitely see him get definitely, like, dusted by the light of the sun in that movie. And if we want to make the headcanon that that's a different Dracula than Bela Lugosi because, hey, it's John Carradine, and that, like the circus owner who's like, this is the authentic body of Dracula just has like a body of a Dracula instead of the body of the Dracula. It still doesn't work with the fact that John Carradine's version of Dracula comes back again in house of Dracula. He's a twin. And, and is totally fine. And then gets light of the sun dusted again. So I feel like Dracula's got the worst character continuity as like a single character trying to follow him like through these films yeah it's universal what what are you gonna do no one stays dead so that's the frankenstein portion of abbott and costello meet frankenstein the people who we aren't as familiar with here on scream scene is abbott and costello yeah i mean unless people are like screaming with laughter <laughs> So if you don't know who Abbott and Costello are, dear listener, it's probably because you're not, like, 90 years old. Um, But (laughs) Abbott and Costello were an extremely popular comedy duo in the mid-20th century. Like a lot of 20th century comedy duos, they consist of, like, one put-upon, tall, uh, sort of straight man... And one, like, more zany, causing all the antics, shorter, uh, more rotund man. Like, literally, if you think about the comedy duos of the 20th century, Abbott and Costello, Mutt and Jeff, C-3PO and R2-D2. Honestly, I was, my brain immediately went to Pinky and the Brain. Right. It's it's a very similar, like, arrangements. Um, Pinky and the Brain switches around who's the straight man and who's the comic. But the standard setup is the tall guy is the straight man. The shorter, more rotund guy is the comic. Abbott and Costello are certainly the most successful, I think, and most iconic version of this standard duo. Um, they're most known for their who's on first routine. Now, Abby, you no. want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's names? Well, I should. Well, now you tell me the guy's names on the baseball I team. I say, who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> Which I feel like is still generally pretty well regarded. Um, a lot of their humor depends upon witty banter and repartee between the two of them and the setup for their characters. Um, even though they play different characters in all of their movies, they are all Abbott and Costello. And Abbott and Costello have, like, a stock character profile for the versions of themselves that they play in their shows. Yeah. Sort of like the way that, you know, 
Stephen Colbert has a version of himself that he played on TV that wasn't necessarily him. They have a shtick, and the shtick is that, you know, Costello is childish and sort of gets into trouble, and, you know, Abbott is sort of the one, like, sighing and being like, oh, what have you got us into this time? And it's this back and forth between them where Abbott gets, like, angry or frustrated about Costello, like, not understanding something very basic or getting them into trouble over something. And I think because the heart of their comedy comes from the interaction between the two of them and the situations they're in, their comedy, especially the, like, things like who's on first that you can kind of pull out and have be separate, Mm -hmm. um, has stood the test of time pretty well for something from the mid-20th century. Yeah, it's like the interaction between them rather than, like, them mocking, like, someone else or mm-hmm. putting down someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not It's not so much, like, punching up versus punching down. They're just, like, punching each other. Yeah, exactly. I think probably the stuff about their comedy that maybe has aged the worst is that, like, there is a lot of jokes at the expense of Costello's weight, and that might strike, like, a modern-day viewer as, like, a little insensitive. Um, but for the most part, I think their stuff's aged pretty well. They had routines like who's on first you know of these back and forth banters that essentially could then be dropped into whatever story was happening in terms of like the overall movie so i feel like they're almost really well suited for today's like youtube era of just like watching bits and clips from movies like out of context sure so tell me about either Abbott and or Costello. For sure. So William Alexander Abbott was born in New Jersey on October 2nd, 1897. His parents were carnies, um, first at the Barnum and Bailey Circus and later at like Coney Island. Abbott dropped out of school to work at Coney Island. um, And then he became a box office worker for burlesque shows Um, (laughs) he married a burlesque dancer and rose up the ranks to manage his own burlesque show. He then started performing when he had to step in to perform as the straight man for the show when he couldn't afford to keep paying one. Listener, if you're not familiar with, like, traditional 20th century burlesque shows, like, yes, there's the striptease aspect that you're probably thinking of, but those striptease acts often were... A, themselves comedic, and B, part of, like, a larger vaudeville sort of show with comedy, like, breaks between the strip teases and usually, like, an MC straight man who interacts with the burlesque performers and all of this other kind of stuff, right? Yeah, but I am picturing Abbott doing a, the, like, feather fan dance a little bit. <laughs> that was his wife. Um <laughs> Abbott suffered from epilepsy, and he self-medicated with alcohol. Oh, no. Uh, He did remain married to his wife for his entire life uh, until he passed away on April 24th, 1974. Louis Francis Cristillo was also born in New Jersey on March 6th, 1906 to Italian immigrants. He was a star athlete in high school. He was, like, a basketball champ. He was a boxer. Um, He was, like, capable of a lot of, like, crazy athletic prowess, which, you know, is kind of 
not what you'd expect, given that, like, the gag in the comedy duo about him is that he's fat. One of their movies has, like, basketball stuff in it, and Costello does all these, like, trick basketball shots, and they're all really him doing it, because he was actually very skilled at basketball, despite being the short, fat one of the group. So he wanted to be a star, so he hitchhiked out to Hollywood in 1927, and he didn't get acting jobs, but he did get stunt jobs. Uh, so he was a stuntman in Hollywood movies in the late 20s. That makes sense. And that's a really dangerous time to be doing stunt work. Yep. Like, of all the times. His older brother, Anthony, became a professional musician under the name Pat Costello. So Lou changed his name to Match, which is how he becomes Lou Costello. Uh, when talkies came in in Hollywood... Costello decided that, like, in order for him to move out from being a stuntman to being an actor, he needed now to have, like, stage experience and be able to say lines and stuff. So he moved back out to the East Coast to get that stage experience. Where he ended up getting hired was in burlesque shows, where he started developing this career as a comic. In 1934, he married his wife, who would also stay with him until his death, who was also a burlesque dancer. They have a lot in common. Yeah, they meet on the burlesque scene in 1935. And at first, the first time they perform together is because the straight man who Costello had been working with got sick that night. And so Abbott steps in to be the straight man for his act. And, like, basically everyone, including their wives, are like, oh... Oh, 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 you two, you guys, this is the thing. You need you... to be together. Yeah. So they become super successful as a comedy duo. Um, they sign to William Morris, the talent agency, and they start booking radio appearances. Their similar voices made it really hard for radio listeners to distinguish who was who, which led to Costello affecting that high-pitched, childish voice that he has, the, you know, kind of, like, thing that he does, and the way that he talks where it's kind of like, well, I, I, I didn't mean to get in any trouble, Abbott, you know. Um, that whole persona comes about so that people on the radio can hear which is which. Okay. They first performed uh, the Who's On First routine on the radio in 1938. Um, it would later show up in their first movie, One Night in the Tropics, um, but the best version of it is generally taken to be a version from the movie The Naughty 90s, which is like entirely based around baseball as being the plot. They had their own radio show on ABC from 1940 to 1949, and then when the movies came calling, it was Universal Studios who wanted to sign them on basically for a supporting part in the 1940 musical One Night in the Tropics. So the kind of thing where, like, they're the comic relief, right? It's, they're the C-3PO and R2-D2 of this musical that otherwise has other stars, right? Sure. Uh, they stole the show. Like, absolutely the only thing people came away from that movie talking about was them. Uh, so that led to them being put in their own movies, their own starring roles. Uh, starting with Buck Privates in 1941, where they are, like... Army Privates, which made $4 million 
on a $245,000 budget. Holy shit. Yeah, so they end up making four more movies in 1941 alone Holy at Universal. Shit. Because Universal's like, oh, hello, money. Um, <laughs> they make, like, movies where they're in the Navy. They make movies where they're in the Air Force. Oh, my God, um, just repeating this formula. Yeah, absolutely. By 1942... They're among the highest paid performers in the United States. Uh, all their movies have been, like, massive hits. Uh, all six that came out in 1941. By 1943, things start to fall apart. Oh, no. Um, I have never... I didn't know things fell apart. I thought they were just always successful. Oh, no. So, in 1943, Costello's uh, infant son, Lou Costello Jr., uh, dies in a drowning accident. Oh, no. Um, And then, in 1945, the two men have this huge rift between them, which probably had been building for a little while. Um, There was a lot of, like, back and forth on them of, like, how they were paid. They, They were always paid, like, the same amount, but, like... They, they, you know, it was getting to the I point where they the were... I write the setup, you write the punchline, mine's y- better, like, mine's more important than yours. Yeah, yeah, and these kinds of things, right? Um, so these rifts were developing, and what set off the main rift between them was that um, Costello had fired this, like, domestic servant from his staff, like a maid or a butler or whatever, I, I don't know what it was exactly, and Abbott hired that person, <laughs> and Costello, like was furious at him. Oh my god. So in their films in 1946, like they make a bunch of more movies um in 1946, but all of their scenes are separate. Like there are Abbott scenes and there are Costello scenes. There are not scenes where they are together. Oh, so yeah. I'm sure that like the groove is off. Oh yeah, given that their whole comedy thing is their interplay, uh so their movies start failing at the box office. Um, Things start going downhill for them. Uh, They're not making the money that they used to. In 1947, Abbott patches things up with Costello. Um, The way he does this is by opening the Lou Costello Jr. Foundation for Underprivileged Children. Oh. So they patch things up, and they want to sort of get back on track, basically. Sorry, that's just like a really nice gesture. Yes, That's really sweet. Yes. So, by the time they made this film, they had made 21 movies in eight years. Wow. Yeah. They survived the transition from Universal to Universal International in 1946 with the new owners and the merger, despite the fact that Universal International had that no B pictures policy, simply due to the weight of their financial success alone. So, like I said, by this point, they're not quite bringing in the amount of money that they once did. Uh, So this movie was kind of designed to be, in a way, their comeback. Now, they had done horror comedy before. Uh, In 1941, they had a movie called Hold That Ghost that was basically like a, you know, haunted house goof-em-up. Spook-em-up? Spook them up, yeah. And while Universal International had put this moratorium on doing horror movies anymore, the feeling was that the classic monsters had kind of run their course. So even if you were going to make more movies with them, 
it made more sense for those movies to be a spoof. Like, doing a spoof seemed like the best way to get more mileage out of Universal's classic monsters. So it sort of was like a case of, you know, Abbott and Costello's writers, because their movies were all written by, like, the same team, they had the same directors they worked with over and over again, the same producers they worked with over and over again. Their writers here, uh, John Grant, Robert Lees, and Federico Ronaldo, it kind of was a situation of them going like, okay, what can the theme for the next movie be? What haven't we done before? What toys do we have in the toy box here at Universal for Abbott and Costello to play with? And it's like, oh, we have these monsters, and we're not doing anything with them. Like, it's not like we're going to fuck up, you know, the prestige of their various movie series because Universal International has said no more. So if no one's getting to play with these toys anyway... Like, let's do a spoof with them. Yeah. So they write up the story uh, and the script, these three writers, and it goes through, like, a lot of different iterations. And, you know, also being a comedy film, you can bet that, like, there's a lot of ad-libs that made it into the movie. They were rewriting pages on the day, all that kind of stuff. But when they presented, like, the final shooting script to be like, here's the movie, you know, before shooting starts... Um, Costello fucking hated it. Oh, uh, no. He said uh, that his five-year-old daughter could do better. Uh, <laughs> he was, like, not in love with this movie. But he really warmed up to it once they started shooting. And they started having, like, a good time on set. Oh, that's good. The producer of this movie is Robert Arthur, who got his start with film during World War II, uh, being part of, like the U.S. Army's, like, propaganda divisions. He produced 600 Army training films. Holy moly. Um, so after World War II, he was like, oh, well, I, I know how to do this. I'm going to get a career in Hollywood. So he signed on with Universal after the war. And the first movie he produces after the war is Buck Privates Come Home in 1947, the sequel to Abbott Costello's original hit, Buck Privates you know, about their army characters coming home now that the war's over. Yeah. Um, that is a hit. So he ends up becoming Abbott and Costello's regular producer from that point on. And then even after Abbott and Costello end, um, he stays with Universal and signs a lifetime contract with them and just, like, stays as a Universal producer as the studio is bought and sold, and bought and sold, and changes hands, and becomes different things over the years. He stays there his whole career until he dies in 1986. A lifetime contract. Correct. Uh, is that legal? <laughs> if he signs it. <laughs> uh, and was he, like, working, or was he just on the payroll? He was regularly working, I think, until the mid-70s. Okay. Yeah. The film's director is Charles Barton, who started in show business as an actor at age 13, and then he kind of just, like, worked his way up. Like, he became, like, an assistant director, and then he became a director, you know, and worked his way up the studio chain. Um, he first directed Abbott and Costello in 1946, and from that point on became their regular director. Their original regular director was Arthur Lubin, who directed the Claude Rains version of Femme of the Opera. Yeah. So he's already worked with, you know, everyone who's working with them in this movie at this point are people they've already been working with and will continue to work with, right? This is the regular Abbott and Costello team who are making this movie. A very well-oiled machine. Correct. 
The film's cast has a good girl and a bad girl in the cast lineup. Uh, the good girl is Jane Randolph. The bad girl is Lenore Aubert. Uh, Lenore Aubert was a model and actress who had been born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1913 and changed her name from Eleanor Lichner to Lenore Aubert in 1940 when she started acting. We have seen her before. Uh, she was the love interest in The Catman of Paris. Jane Randolph is the good girl, and we have also previously seen her because she was the um, good girl love interest turned wife and mother in Cat People and Curse of the Cat People. Okay, cool. This would be her last film role. In 1949, she divorced her first husband, who was also her agent. Uh, And then she married a wealthy, like, Spaniard who was like... (laughs) Descended from, like, a wealthy, noble Spanish family. Damn. Uh, and she retired to go be a socialite in Spain. I mean, I don't blame her. She divorced him in 1966 and just lived in Switzerland until her death at age 94 in 2009. 94. Yep. So, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, reunites the big three. Uh, so we've got Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, and the Wolfman in this picture. Once again, Lon Chaney Jr. would play Larry Talbot. He had been fired by Universal in 1945 and his contract sort of torn up uh, due to difficulties working with him caused by his alcoholism. So here they are hiring him like as an independent, basically, to come back and play this role. Chaney was really hoping that if he did a good job on this picture, it would lead to him being offered a new contract, particularly since, like, this was now new owners, this was now Universal Internationals. But despite the success of this movie, that didn't happen. Um, There was not a forgetfulness about Cheney's issues at Universal. Cheney was very dejected by that, and that led to his suicide attempt later that year where he attempted to kill himself through an overdose of sleeping pills. Oh, dear. Um, that saw him ending up, like, hospitalized. And, yeah, just not not a good time uh, for Lon Chaney Jr. Speaking of people who aren't having a good time, uh, Bela Lugosi had not been in a major studio film since his work for RKO in 1945. And he had not worked at all since doing Scared to Death, which was his only movie in all of 1947. Um, so his career was pretty on the rocks as well. Universal International initially had no intention of casting him to be in this movie. Um, Oddly enough, they weren't looking at John Carradine either, which to me would seem like the natural person to go to um, at this time. They were looking at an actor named Ian Keith to play Dracula. Uh, But what happened was Lugosi's manager went to Universal and like met with the Universal execs in person and basically shamed them into hiring Lugosi, saying, like, you owe it to him to give him this role. Like, if he hadn't been Dracula for you guys in 1931, none of these other movies would have ever happened. Lugosi is Dracula. Everyone knows that. Like, you owe it to him to cast him. So this would actually be the first time 
that Lugosi would officially be reprising the role of Dracula on film since the original movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he of He's course done like the knockoff versions, I guess, in like B movies. And... Yeah, and like Return of the Vampire is sort of a no name brand Dracula sequel. Yeah. Um, it's also worth saying that like he had started playing Dracula on stage before he did the movie. And the stage play version of Dracula was something that he returned to over and over again throughout his career. You know, whenever he needed, like, some easy money, basically. Yeah. Like, he might not be able to do it on Broadway anymore, but, like, he could throw together, like, a tour of the stage play of Dracula through, like, a bunch of, you know, middle American cities. And it would still do well because Bella Lugosi's in it, right? Abbott and Costello movie sets were very chaotic places. Um, The actors were constantly trying to, like, crack each other up and make people break during their takes. Um, There was a lot of practical jokes that were being played on people back and forth. They actually had a guy on staff named Bobby Barber, whose job was court jester. Um, Basically, his entire job was to make Abbott and Costello laugh and keep them laughing between takes and keep everybody's energy up while shooting was going on. So that, like, there was an energy of comedy and laughter throughout the entire day, even for Abbott and Costello, so that they didn't get, like, you know, worn down. That is really interesting. Did other um, comedies or, like comedy duo movies have a, a role like I've this? I've never heard of any other movie having something like this. So I think it's just something that, like, they were they weren't, like, Bobby Barber wasn't on payroll with Universal. Yeah. He was on payroll to Abbott and Costello. Like, they were paying him to come and do this on their movies. Lugosi did not take kindly to this set. Uh, he was not impressed. Um, the ad-libbing you know, on various takes, threw him off. The zany antics angered him. He apparently spent most of the time shooting this movie just glowering at everyone with disgust. Like, oh, he did no. not enjoy this attitude. At one point, he got super fed up when Bobby Barber, like, was walking around in, in Lugosi's Dracula cape and, like, impersonating Lugosi's accent. And Lugosi declared, We should not be playing while we are working! And then just stormed off the set. Yeah. Um, He told a New York Times interviewer that what he was happy about making this movie was that he was playing Dracula straight. So the monsters in the movie are played straight like they would be in a normal horror movie. And it's Abbott and Costello who are doing, like, the zaniness. So the zaniness is happening around Dracula, but Dracula himself is still Dracula. And that was really important to Lugosi because Lugosi was concerned about his image not being tarnished by doing the film. Yeah. Ironically, because this film ended up being so successful, Lugosi would end up seeking out horror comedy farces to do after this, even though he didn't enjoy making this movie. So he did Mother Riley Meets the Vampire in 1952 and Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla in 1953. Um, which were both, like, cheap crap and bombed, um, but were made because he was trying to tap into the success from this movie. This, Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, would be Lugosi's final film at a major studio. Mm-hmm. Glenn Strange reprises his role as the Frankenstein monster from the previous Monster Rally pictures, and ironically, this movie gives him more screen time and more to do than, like, 
any of his previous appearances as the monster. He gets to talk for the first time as the monster. He's active through the whole story and not just brought to life in the last minute uh, to have a house fall on him. It kind of breaks the narrative mold for the creature and lets Strange actually do more as the creature. Unlike the previous rally films, in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, the plot lines of all three monsters connect and intersect and they all interact with each other because it's centered on Abbott and Costello. It's the three monsters are something that are happening to Abbott and Costello. And so they're finally all doing stuff together, which is what you would think people had wanted from the monster rally movies all along. Like in a weird way, this movie's better at being a monster rally movie than the straight ones. Yeah. Strange constantly broke on set from laughing at Abbott and Costello's antics, ruining many takes. It would require a ton of takes to get Glenn Strange through a scene. And there are still shots in the movie where if you look closely, he's like trying his best not to smile. This caused a bit of a problem. So the Universal International merger had seen makeup man Jack Pierce squeezed out of the studio. Uh, And they replaced him with Bud Westmore of the illustrious Westmore family. Now, to replicate Pierce's designs in this movie, Westmore used the new and faster method of creating foam latex appliances, which uh, Pierce had always resisted. So in this method, you could make, you know, the various things like the the wolfman face or the frankenstein head as like single like rubber pieces that could sit and wait for the actor to arrive in the morning and then you just had to apply it right so for strange's frankenstein monster in this movie um the entire flat top headpiece was a single rubber appliance that was then like affixed to strange's head and you know in order to make the seal from his own forehead to the fake forehead, you know, look good. Um, The entire piece was watertight. So after hours of these ruined takes under the hot studio lights, by the end of the day, the sloshing sound of the sweat that had built up within the headpiece became became audible on set. Oh my god! Like, he would turn his head side to side, and it would shloosh, shloosh, shloosh. Oh my god! That, that's not real. That is true. Oh no, that's so gross. Oh my god. Now, the other thing about this raucous set is it led to multiple accidents and injuries. Uh, nothing serious, but just like the kind of things that happen when people are trying to pull zany, zany bullshit antics all the time. Um... At one point, Strange fractured his ankle. So, for one scene, Lon Chaney stepped in to play the monster again. Oh! So there's one scene in this movie where Chaney's the monster. Okay. Boris Karloff refused to have anything to do with this movie. He had had enough of Universal. Very much so. But the studio ended up convincing him to do publicity for the film. By convincing, do you mean paid copious amounts of money (laughs) yes so karloff was paid to do like publicity stunts like show up at a theater to buy a ticket so that he could be photographed buying a ticket or like photographed 
you know, standing next to the poster and like pointing at it or like doing radio interviews where he's like, oh yeah, you should go see the new Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I give it my hearty endorsement as the former and most famous monster, you know, kind of thing. Right. Um, the conditions of doing all this publicity for the movie was that he would not appear in the film and that he would not have to watch the film. What did he do with the tickets he bought? It was all... I mean, he fucking threw them in a trash bin. They cost him a dime. He's Boris Karloff. He paid for them with the money Universal paid him to show up and buy the ticket. So Abbott and Costello were paid $105,000 each for their appearance in this film, uh, which went $33,000 over budget. Not the worst. So it had a final price tag of $800,000. Um, and for comparison, House of Frankenstein, that had a budget of $350,000. Oh, so like almost three times as expensive. Yeah. Um, which again, you know, like a fourth of that was Abbott and Costello's salaries, but like... Still. Still. Uh, the movie was a huge hit. It made $3.2 million at the box office. Wow. It revitalized Abbott and Costello's careers. It did not revitalize the monsters' careers. Yeah, they, they're just the toys to be played with, unfortunately. Exactly. Now, seeing the success of this movie must have changed Boris Karloff's mind about Abbott and Costello, uh, because he would appear in the follow-up, Abbott and Costello Meet Boris Karloff the Killer, and then after that, they would do Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man, which is teased at the end of this movie when Vincent Price shows up as the voice of the Invisible Man, uh, reprising his role from The Invisible Man's Return. Then they would do Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where Karloff would play Jekyll and Hyde, the one time that Universal did a Jekyll and Hyde movie. And then finally, there was Abbott and Costello meet the Mummy, where they meet Karis and Ananka and the gang. There were other Abbott and Costello meet movies as well, like Abbott and Costello meet Captain Kidd, who was played by Charles Lawton. Um, But they were not like these horror crossover ones. So I'm just mentioning the horror crossover ones. Yeah. So this movie has been released several times on home video. It's very widely available. Um, You can get it on its own on DVD and on Blu-ray, or you can get it as part of the uh, Universal Monsters Legacy Collection on Blu-ray. It's also available in the Frankenstein Legacy Collection, the Dracula Legacy Collection, and the Wolfman Legacy Collection. I mean, it makes sense. They all come in. And then it is also on the Best of Abbott and Costello Collection Volume 3, as well as the Abbott and Costello Complete Universal Pictures Collection. So with such a wide-ranging availability on DVD and Blu-ray, you can also expect that it's pretty easy to find online. Uh, You can rent it on iTunes, Google Play, the Cineplex Store, the Microsoft Store, and YouTube. So pretty much everywhere. Cool. So the fact that it's Volume 3 of The Best of Abbott and Costello is not necessarily a reflection on this movie, but more a reflection on how much... There is. Yes. Of Abbott and Costello. Yes. So the thing that kind of spelled the end for Abbott and Costello at the end of the day uh, was 
a few factors. Um, the acrimonious sort of relationship between the two of them continued to get worse over the years, um, just from like the strain of working with the same person every day for like 20 years. Yeah. Um, their movies started making less and less money. Universal eventually dropped them uh, in the early 1950s. So their later films were produced by their own production company and then like released through like United Artists and stuff like that. One of the things that was responsible for their decline was overexposure because they had like at least two movies coming out every year. They had the radio show. And then starting in 1951, they had their own TV show as well. The other thing was changing tastes in comedy. One thing that's pointed to a lot is the arrival of the comedy duo of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis in 1955 with a kind of new style of comedy that would, you know, continue into the 1960s. Um, that kind of more like laid back sort of style. Finally, the duo broke up after an incident at Errol Flynn's house. Now, this was not the sole cause of their split. This was sort of a straw breaks the camel's back kind of moment. But Errol Flynn had invited, and like Errol Flynn's a bastard, so uh, Errol Flynn had invited Abbott and Costello and their wives and their families to his house for like a party, and he had told them that he was going to show them some home movies uh, from yeah. like his his uh, like you know trips or whatever around the world. And as a joke, what he put on was hardcore pornography. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he was like, oh, how did that get in there? Right? Abbott and Costello, instead of turning on Flynn and being like, oh, he's playing a joke on us, each assumed the other had put, pulled the switch as a practical joke because, like, they're the two comedians in the room pulling practical jokes on each other is the thing that they do. But like this time, like their wives are there, their kids are there. Like it's, it's their whole families. So each blamed the other and wouldn't speak to each other again. Oh, that's, I know you said that that's like the straw that broke the camel's back, but like it, it wasn't even the other person. Yeah. It sucks. Costello passed away of a heart attack in 1959 Abbott tried to find, like, other comedy partners in the 60s, but always was like, no, this isn't any good. Um, and he passed away in 1974. Okay. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, Ben has shared how to do so. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein from 1948, directed by Charles Barton. See you on the other side, everybody. back everyone to this special episode of scream scene we just finished watching abbott and costello meet frankenstein from 1948 directed by charles barton sarah i think you had a good time yes lots of laugh out loud moments yeah this is not the first time seeing this movie for either of us uh, we've seen it before but the fact that i still found quite a lot of it funny yeah really speaks to 
how much fun there is in this movie, how much enjoyment you can get out of it. Yeah, I think there's like a certain kind of horror fan. And I mean, we're talking kind of in a bit of a narrow niche now, because like, you already have to be a horror fan who knows and likes the Universal Monster movies. Um, But there is a kind of fan who feel like this movie ruined those characters um, because like, oh, they, their, their star had fallen so far that like they were in this bad little spoof movie, kind of the same sort of person who like shits on the Adam West Batman or, or, or that kind of thing. And I can understand that, but like this movie's fun. This is a fun movie. You should go see this movie. Yeah. And like, we're not laughing at the monsters. Right. We're laughing at Abbott and specifically Costello being, like, chased by them and having to, like, deal with these monsters. Yeah, exactly. The creatures we see in this movie, the big three, are very true to form. Like, I think you could make the argument that maybe Dracula is out of his mold, because he's almost, like, taking on a little bit of a mad scientist role Yeah, I mean... But he's still Dracula. Carradine's Dracula sort of started going in that direction in House of Dracula, right? Where he got involved with the mad scientist in that movie and was getting into, like, let's revive the monster for these reasons and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like that's continuing on from Carradine's version. Mm -hmm. Um, All three of the monsters, I think one of the smartest things this movie does is making the decision, is making the decision to play the monsters straight. You know, Chaney, Lugosi, Strange, they're all just doing the roles as they normally would. And I think what that does is it makes the movie a fun romp rather than something where we're punching down at the horror genre. Yeah. And it also is, I mean, like we'll get to the plot summary, mm -hmm. but um, the feeling of the romp is an apt one to describe here, Ben, because it it changes it up enough that, like, I don't feel like it's a slog. Yeah, this movie is fun. Yeah. And, like, honestly, it is better at what it's doing and a better monster rally movie than the two house movies. Like, maybe not... And definitely Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Huh. I was just about to say maybe not better than Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, but it doesn't really matter because we won't be ranking this. This is true. Uh, um, But, like, what I mean to say is that the other two movies, the two house movies, are very repetitive. And the only thing they really add from Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is Dracula, and Dracula's, like, not super involved. And in this movie, like I said in the intro, all of the monsters' storylines are connected, And they all interact with each other, and you get a lot more, I think, of what you probably wanted from the Monster Rally movies, even though this is a comedy, because all you really want from these movies is to see the monsters interact. Yeah. Right? And be in a movie together. Like, you don't go to King Kong versus Godzilla to see those two monsters not do anything. Yeah, with each other. Exactly. Yeah. Um... But let me tell people what it's about. Oh, sure. That's probably a good first step. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Very much <laughs> That's so. how much we liked this. It was just like, yeah, let's, let's just dive in. So Abbott is playing a character named Chick, who I sometimes hear as Jake. 
Yeah, it's definitely Chick. Yeah. And Costello is playing a character named Wilbur. They work at a shipping company, and they receive a call from a Larry Talbot in London about two crates. And Talbot urges them, no, don't deliver these until I get there. I'll be there in the morning, before he turns into the wolfman on the phone. <laughs> now, Wilbur, who answers this call, thinks that it's the person who ordered these crates, uh, Mr. McDougal. And so he's surprised when Mr. McDougal arrives, like, five minutes later for the crates in person. Mr. McDougal says, no, I want these crates taken to my house of horrors, which is basically like a wax museum kind of place. While Chick and Wilbur are getting those boxes organized, um, McDougal shares to Sandra, Wilbur's sweetheart, that in the boxes are the original Dracula and Frankenstein's monster himself. So Chick and Wilbur deliver these crates, but Dracula arises and wakes up the creature, grabs his coffin, and gets out. McDougal says that, like, he got... Dracula and the Frankenstein's monster real cheap from a European dealer. So I, I think probably what happened was Dracula sold himself to this guy to get the transport over to America. Because the contents of the crates are now missing, McDougal gets his insurance company involved, and this insurance company gets their investigator, Joan Raymond, on the case to figure out what's going on. Um, and she goes, ah, I will attempt to basically seduce Wilbur in order to get them to tell me where they stole the exhibits. Meanwhile, we see Sandra welcoming Dracula by name to her giant castle laboratory. On an island. On an island. Off the coast of Florida. <laughs> I mean, there's islands off the coast of Florida. That's but, like the least weird part of this, Ben. But do they have gothic castles on them with big you know, Strickfaden laboratories in them. They could. I've never been to Florida. <laughs> it's clear that Dracula and Sandra have had some kind of correspondence because they have this plan and Dracula is like, ah, see, I need to revive the creature with a new brain. And I want a brain that isn't smart or devious or manipulative. Uh, I want, like, a simpleton's brain. And Sandra's like, I got just the guy for you. <laughs> Her plan is to get Wilbur's brain into the creature so that the creature is easier for Dracula to control. What exactly Dracula wants to control the creature to do is not clear or important. Rampage. Right, but he... Okay, it's fine. <laughs> There's also a Professor Stevens at the house, uh, and he doesn't know anything about this plan, and is, in fact, getting suspicious at the amount of Strickfaden equipment getting delivered. He is best sort of thought of as Dr. McHandsome. Yeah. Now, Talbot has made it to America, and he goes to Wilbur and Chick, and he's like, we gotta find these guys. Like, Dracula's going to be doing this shit. And Wilbur's like, oh, fuck, I, I know, I saw them. And Chick is like, you both are crazy, whatever. And to his credit, Talbot does say, like, I turn into a wolfman. And they don't really believe him, but they're like, yeah, okay, whatever. You're crazy, too. But before helping Talbot stop the end of the world <laughs> of Dracula and the creature going on a rampage, Wilbur double books himself with a date to a masquerade ball with Sandra and Joan. So Joan, Wilbur, and Chick, who is along for the ride, um, 
go to the castle to pick up Sandra. Yeah, they row over there in a rowboat, you know, like you do to pick up your girlfriend from her giant gothic castle. Yeah, that's the gentlemanly thing to do, Ben. (laughs) While at the castle, um, Sandra finds out that Joan is an insurance agent, and Joan finds out that Sandra has Dr. Frankenstein's notes. Another copy. (laughs) Another copy. Wilbur also gets a call from Talbot because there's a lead that Dracula and the creature are at this castle. Yeah, Talbot basically found out that, like, a lot of Strickfaden equipment was getting delivered to, like, this weird gothic castle on an island in the middle of nowhere, and he was like, aha! Like, I feel like this movie is saying that uh, Talbot wasn't necessarily bit by a wolf, but maybe a bloodhound, because the way he sniffs up clues (laughs) is very impressive. I just feel like he must have, like, by now, like, has some, like, you know, inside informants at, like, shipping companies and, like travel agencies and so on so that like hey if this kind of equipment or these kind of boxes ever are getting delivered call me (laughs) now sandra is getting cold feet she's like the insurance agency is on to us we should slow down and dracula is like no i need to get wilbur's brain in the creature now so he bites and hypnotizes sandra into going further along with the plan yeah She might have gotten turned into a vampire, considering that we never see her in the daylight ever again. Or she might have just gotten Renfielded. I feel like she got Renfielded. Yeah, but, you know, either way. So they all go to this masquerade party. (laughs) And also Larry Talbot is there, because he's been looking for our our boys. Yes. (laughs) And Professor Stevens came too, because... Dracula was like, get out of the house and have some fun, Stevens. Get away and stop asking questions. Exactly. And basically at this party, the whole plan is for Sandra to get Wilbur back to the castle to do the experiment, Dracula to take care of Joan so she's no longer a threat with her insurance agency powers. Um, Also, Larry Talbot turns into the Wolfman and bites McDougal on the throat. So he has a big storm coming. And the next morning... Talbot and Chick realize that Wilbur's been taken, whatever, so they head to the castle to rescue everyone with Stevens. Stevens is also coming. Yeah, there's a bit of a problem because Chick's masquerade ball costume was... Was the wolfman? Yeah, like, so him and and Talbot... Talbot's, like, really offended. (laughs) Yes, Talbot's, like, very offended by this mask that Chick has, and so Chick doesn't wear it. But they're in the same outfit, like the same black dress shirt. So when Talbot transforms and attacks McDougal, McDougal assumes it was Chick? Yeah, because they've been having fights, having words That's all right. night. Yeah. At the castle, they all manage to rescue Joan, but Wilbur is back in the castle for his experiment. Chick and Larry head in, busted up. Chick accidentally knocks Sandra unconscious, and Larry begins to free Wilbur just as he turns into the Wolfman at every inopportune time. Yeah. <laughs> um, as the Wolfman, he starts fighting with Dracula and, like, chasing him through the house <laughs> like an angry terrier. Meanwhile, um, because of being hooked up to electricity, the creature kind of gets juiced up again, and he ends up, like, grabbing Sandra, she's screaming, and tosses her out the window. Which we know is, like, several stories high. Yeah, that's the last we see of her. Yeah. 
Um, and then the creature begins to chase Wilbur and Trick through the house. As they are being chased, we see Wolfman and Dracula fighting through the other hallway direction. A lot is going on. Finally, Dracula is like, fuck all of this, and heads to a balcony to transform into a bat to GTFO. Just as he's a bat, the Wolfman pounces and grabs the bat and is like, biting into him. But he jumped off a balcony and falls off into the shoreline. Yeah. Down so, into the sea below. So, it, you know, the implication is that he ha- they have died. That they have died. And this is especially underlined because after that, Joan seems to come out of whatever hypnotized state she had been in. Wilbur and Chick make it out of the castle and are chased by Franken's by Frankenstein's monster to a pier. They get in a boat and are trying to row away while Stevens and Joan light the pier on fire. And with nowhere to go but the fire, the creature kind of tries to get through the fire and seems to burn up and die inside. So, phew! Oh, we made it! It's the end of the movie! Wilbur and Chick are like, oh man, like, next time believe me when I tell you that I've seen what I see when I saw it. And then they hear a mysterious laugh. And they're like, who the fuck is that? And Vincent Price goes, it's the Invisible Man. The end. So, very fun. Lots of fun. Lots of characters. Yes. But because we remain focused on Wilbur and Sandra, basically, as like the two drivers of the plot and like the two pieces of making the plot come together, it doesn't really feel like... I'm sitting here tapping my foot going, when are some people going to get killed? Why do we have so many people here? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that if the movie has a weak point, honestly, it's Joan and Professor Stevens. I Um, was going, yes, definitely a weak point, but I love that, like, once they're together, we don't really care what happens to them like we stay with our boys it doesn't really matter what happens to that breeding couple it's so weird and vestigial because that's absolutely what they are right like they're the breeding couple like stevens is the handsome square-jawed guy and joan is the good girl blonde but they do feel vestigial it's like they're here because someone thought there had to be like a traditional romantic couple in this movie but like Joan gets a little bit more to do because she gets to, like, seduce Wilbur. But, like, then she gets hypnotized, and she's basically hypnotized the rest of the movie. Stevens never really gets anything to do. Until the Um, end. Yeah, and even then, like, not much. Like, yes, he's the one who burns up the creature. But, like, if you think about their actual roles in the plot, like, you could take both of them out and it wouldn't change anything. Mm -hmm. Like... The only thing that Joan really accomplishes is she kind of, like, spooks Sandra into not wanting to, like, go ahead with the plan so quickly, which is why Dracula turns her into a thrall. But, like, if Joan wasn't involved, they would have gone through with the plan on Dracula's original timetable, which is what they do anyway once he makes Sandra a thrall. And once Joan's hypnotized, she doesn't really do anything in the story other than get rescued by Stevens at the end, who doesn't really do anything through the story either because he's just sort of suspicious. And then he rescues Joan at the end. You could take both of them out of the movie and nothing would change. But here's the thing. With them there, it really underlines how much you can see a classic Universal movie going on in the background that Abbott and Costello have just stumbled into. Very true. And I think... The thing that makes the movie work 
on kind of like in two ways is the presence of Abbott and Costello. One... Which makes sense. It's like that movie. That's right, why it makes yeah. it work. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, tell me, tell me. So like one, they're a focal point for everything else to revolve around that is a big part of why all the monster stuff feels way more connected than in previous movies. Because in House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula, each monster just sort of had their own separate storyline that would be like loosely linked by whoever the mad scientist was that time. Mm-hmm. Um, because there wasn't really any protagonists is the problem, right? You just had these three monsters and a mad scientist, but no one who was really like a central figure. This movie has a central figure for everything else to revolve around, which makes the monsters work a lot better. Um, And also helps them remain threats. Yes, exactly. Additionally, I think one of the things that makes the fact that there are so many characters work is the majority of them are already known types to the audience, right? The audience already knows Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman's deal. And if you didn't, there's some, like, helpful exposition near the start of the movie to tell you. But, like, generally speaking, if you're going to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, you know what the deal is with the monsters. You also know what the deal is with Abbott and Costello, who play the same basic characters in every movie that they do. Yeah. So you don't need to really be paying a lot of attention in terms of, like, the character arcs or, like, who this person is or what their motivation is, right? Because, like, Larry just doesn't want to be the Wolfman until he's the Wolfman, and then he just wants to wreck shit. The Frankenstein monster just wants to wreck shit. Dracula wants to suck people's blood. You know, Wilbur wants to run away, and Chick wants to not have to keep dealing with all of this bullshit. And that's basically it. You know, Stevens is handsome. Joan is pretty. Sandra's the bad girl. Right, exactly. We're dealing with types, so it makes it really easy to juggle all of the characters. um, Because we don't have to spend a ton of time, like, justifying what their deal is. Yeah. I think what also really makes this movie work is that the people behind the scenes, like behind the camera, understand where the comedy is, which is with our dynamic duo, not with, like, the tropes they're playing with. Yeah, we aren't really... Like, all of the Universal Monster movie tropes are here. We've got the big castle, we've got the laboratory, we've got the fog, we've got all of the things that you would expect. They do everything. They do Lugosi's hypnosis stare. They do... The basement lagoon. Right. uh, The turning walls. Yes, Talbot looking at the moon and transforming. (laughs) And being sad, and then having really good transformation sequences. Yeah, the Frankenstein monster lies on a table that he then gets up from. like And throws someone through a window. Everyone does all the shtick. The shtick isn't what the movie's making fun of. This isn't one of those movies where the joke is someone pointing at the trope and being like, see, it's the trope. Um, Or even being like, isn't that dumb? It's the trope. Right. The funniness is in seeing, you know, basically the fish out of water of putting Abbott and Costello into a universal horror movie. Yeah, like I said, like, I think that makes it really work. Like, the lighting is really good. The cinematography and directing is really good. The sets and everything. They all feel, I guess, authentic is the word I'm looking for. The funny thing is that 
because this movie has a higher budget than the real Monster Rally movies did, because part of the point of the Monster Rally movies was honestly to be spending less and less on those movies in an attempt to get like a bigger return on investment, some of the stuff here looks better than it looked in the last couple of movies. Like, There's some new Strick Faden equipment we haven't seen before. Uh, the lapsed dissolve transformations for the Wolfman are, look better than they have in several movies. Yeah. Um, the animation for Dracula turning into a bat is better than it's ever been. Even the remote control flappy wing bat prop looks better than it has ever looked. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is what the people making Devil Bat wanted it to look like. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of weirdly ironic because, like, they're doing a lot of the monster stuff better than the straight horror movies had been doing for a while, simply because this movie had a bit more money put behind it. And I also wonder, like, the people making this movie are the Abbott Costello team, which, you know, is why the comedy works so well. And it's nice to see that they put the effort into making the monsters work well as well. Yeah, it wasn't just like, eh, just throw Frankenstein in there. I don't care. Right, exactly. I wonder, would it have been as effective if, like, the team that normally made the monster movies made this movie, right? Like, if this was Roland V. Lee and 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 all of those guys doing this, you know, would it have worked? Or would the comedy have been kind of flat? I think it wouldn't have worked. I don't know about the comedy being flat, but I think those guys have done this... So many times. And they're a little tired. Yeah. Abbott and Costello's group have never really done, at least as far as I know, have never really done something quite like this. So Mm -hmm. they are fully and on display having fun with these toys. Yes. I think that really comes across, right? Like, they are having a blast getting to play with Dracula. Getting to play with Frankenstein. Getting to play with the Wolfman. And I think you're on the money about the monster movie team having kind of gotten sick of it and tired of it by the end where like you just couldn't feel there was no spark of inspiration anymore. It was just going through the motions every time and filling in the blanks on the formula. And here they're doing a lot of really fun stuff just because they can. Yeah. Now I will say the only thing I'm disappointed with is there's no follow-up about McDougal becoming a wolfman because he got bit by a wolfman. Oh, yeah. He should be turning into a wolfman, even in like a post-credit sequence. He shows up at the end to go after Wilbur and Chick. Uh, I think it's his boat that arrives that they end up escaping on. Yeah. And basically what happens is they run into the monster and then they're like, and then they jump off the pier into the water and we never see them again. Like they don't swim to safety or uh, they just drowned. They drowned and died. I don't think they drowned. Like they were in pretty shallow water. Very much so. But we never see them swim to safety or get up onto the shoreline or anything. But with that kind of logic, you could argue that Stevens and Joan died off screen because no, we but, don't see what happens to them. But we do see them run off together into the woods. Yeah. So we know what happened to them. They the, went and fucked in the woods. Right. The last thing that happens to McDougal is he jumps into water, which he <laughs> never rises up again from. Now, if I go into the woods and nothing happens to me there, I will still be alive. If I go underwater 
and nothing happens to me, I will drown and die. Okay. Movie logic. Exactly. Abbott is so mean. I just have to say it. Abbott's so mean. Yes. That's the shtick. Yeah, but, like, he doesn't have to be such an ass. <laughs> like, there's a difference between being a straight man and being, like, really mean. <laughs> yeah, but that's the deal. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying. Yeah, he is. It's It's a lot. He is very mean, for sure. I think all the classic monster actors do a good job here, but I think in particular you have to single out Lon Chaney for, like, bringing just as much pathos to the role of Larry Talbot as he ever has. Like, even if his return to both life and lycanthropy are in no way explained, he's playing Larry Talbot just as he did in the last several movies, right? Like, yeah, he's just going, as well as the first time. Yeah, he's going for the pathos. He is still this tragic, pathetic figure. There's still a lot of really uncomfortable undertones given the fact that he himself suffered from alcoholism. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the way that he's his character is able to switch from being like, oh god, I'm like a tragic figure, and then when like Costello makes a joke of like, oh, you turn into a wolf at midnight, so does like 30 million other guys. And the way that Talbot will like grab him by the coat to be like, you don't fucking understand. Yeah, like Talbot's not in a comedy film, right? So he's reacting to Abbott and Costello like they're making fun of this horrible tragedy that is his life and he has no patience for it whatsoever. Yeah, There's it's a, great. Yeah, he's really good. There's a bit where they lock him into his hotel room at night and oddly enough, they do the best job, I feel like, of locking him into his hotel room. <laughs> that anyone, anyone has, has ever, ever done. done. Yeah, and they come the next morning to check on him and the whole thing's like trashed and he's like lying on the ground, passed out. And they go like, oh, wow, what a bender this guy must have gone on. And, like, I was, like, a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Lugosi's also really good. Yeah, I think... It's really nice to see him back in the cape. TBH. Yeah, Lugosi's really good. It would have been really fun if he had been in the previous Monster Rally movies. Like, Carradine's fine. But, like, it sucks that this is the other time Lugosi played Dracula on film, officially. Right? Yeah. Dracula feels slightly off in this movie only because he's having to do a lot of his own dirty work. Like, watching Dracula cart around the monster on a gurney or having to, like, open doors for himself or, like, carry things for himself is a little strange. It's the fall of the aristocracy. Yeah, for sure. It's 1948. You know, things things have not gone Dracula's way. <laughs> uh, but it's still a little... A little Odd. Yeah. But, you know, he can still do the stare, and he can still do the um, hand gestures just as well as ever. Oh, man. When Costello, like, mimics him and the hands he does, it's so fun. Yeah, that's the thing, is, like, the gags in the movie are funny. Like, it's more slapstick than witty banter, but the dialogue gags are still fun. The slapstick is very well done. The movie does the whole horror comedy shtick very, very well. And I think, you know, even when it's just the running through the house and, like, opening a door and, ah, and then you run down the hall and you open up the other door and, ah, it somehow is all elevated 
by the fact that it's the real monsters yeah. in the movie, right? That it's a horror comedy doing a lot of the same horror comedy stuff that we've seen in several horror comedies, but it's actually Dracula. It's actually Frankenstein. Yeah. And it's all the real actors, you know? Like, that's why I love how McDougal is like, I got the original Dracula <laughs> <Yes>. body. <Yeah. laughs> like, none yeah. of these, like, knockoff Draculas. Yeah, because, like, if they did this movie and it had been, you know, Ian Keith as Dracula or they'd recast Larry Talbot because nobody wants to work with Chaney or, you know, whatever, or they didn't get Glenn Strange, like, it would be like, well, what's the point then? Like, you're universal. You're the guys who have these monsters have it be the real thing and they did they did it's the real thing and it feels like it's equally an abbott and costello movie as much as it is a universal monsters movie and i think that's a big part of what makes it work yeah so i would agree with the idea of this being a swan song for these characters um as we've said like it's very authentic it's very truthful to these characters um, and it's a lot of fun. So I would recommend people see it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an essential part of... Universal monster movie watching. Yeah, exactly. Well, folks, thank you so much for joining us for this fun, horror-adjacent episode. Uh, the very first one ever. Thank you to our patrons on patreon.com slash podcast for supporting us and enabling us to be able to do a bonus episode like this we will be doing these types of bonus horror adjacent episodes every month and shared to the public so uh if you want to see more of these uh share the patreon with your friends and help promote the podcast like i said we wouldn't be able to do this without you if you would like to listen to any of the many episodes that we mentioned today in the intro you can do so by heading to our website screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com there, you can send us an ask or an appeal on a ranking by using our appeals box, or you can get in touch with us at uh, screamscenepodcast at gmail.com if you want to shoot us an email, or you can yell at us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. We will see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.